0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When you take a passage of scripture from the middle of a book, it's hard to not preach the entire book because it's all interconnected. The book of Ephesians is perhaps my favorite of the letters of Paul. Uh, There are so many good things in this letter. And Paul is writing to a church that he loves dearly. It's a place where he went and he spent three years ministering, starting this church. And then after he left, he sent his most trusted, beloved saints to go there, Timothy and others, to just minister God's word there, to, to build up the church. And here he's writing this letter from prison. In Rome, with some extra time on his hands, he cares still deeply about this church, and though he cannot go to visit them again, he writes this letter to them. Now, this letter is particularly helpful to know where you are at in it as you read it, because Paul has a very clear um, dissection in this letter. The first three chapters are just all about what God has done. It starts out with this uh, wonderful exaltation of God and how he has chosen us before the foundation of the world and predestined us for adoption as sons. You might be familiar with the passage in Ephesians chapter 1. He just goes on and on about all of the blessings we've received in Christ. For three chapters, Paul goes on and on to remind the church of all that God has done. And it is in light of all of that ink spilled Uh, then Paul turns in chapter 4, 5, and 6 to give commands, exhortations, applications. If if all that is true in chapters 1 through 3, if God has truly done those things, if if this describes how God has acted towards his people, then this is how it ought to affect our lives. And so we come to a passage like this from chapter 4, and it has some indictments about the way that people used to live, and then also some positive things about the way we ought to live. So both a how we ought not to live and how we ought to live. And Paul has picked up on some of the imagery and the language of earlier chapters. Perhaps central to this whole second half of the book is at the end, uh, middle of chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, For we are his workmanship, that's God's workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I I love that passage because it gives you a different perspective on life that God has prepared beforehand good works for us to walk in. And as Paul turns now to give examples and illustrations and exhortations, he uses this imagery of walking. Now, of course, that could actually mean physically walking, but more broadly, it just means how we live, the things we do, how we spend our time and our energy, the patterns we have in our lives. And Paul here is really trying to drive home this reality that we have a new identity in Christ, that the things God has done for us in Christ ought to be lived out, walked out. But as I'm sure you are all intimately acquainted, as I am, we have this old identity, this old self, these old habits, this remaining sinful nature that persists, but it must be defeated. And so Paul is giving us instruction on how to walk, how to live, how to put on this new identity. So first let's look at verses 17 through 19. Notice as Paul begins, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Now you might not stop and think too much about this. One of the helpful things about being a pastor or even learning a original language is not that there's secret hidden meaning. It just makes you stop and slow down. You have time to slow down. And you notice here, Paul is using really emphatic language. You know, we passed this over. I say and I testify. Now, Paul could have easily just said, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. But he's saying, I say to you, and I don't just say to you, I testify to you. Why is that significant? Paul is bearing witness. He is compelled to tell the truth. He is, of course, saying these things, but he is he's, he's passing them on. They need to hear this. And not only do they need to hear it, he is testifying in the Lord. This isn't just one of Paul's good ideas or uh, you know, helpful thoughts uh, from uh, you know, inspirational calendar quotes. Paul is delivering, he's testifying of what God's truth is for this church. He's saying that you must no longer walk As the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given up themselves to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's a pretty, uh, harsh indictment of how the Gentiles walk. Paul is starting here with what we ought not to do. This church uh, is one in which the gospel has come to a pagan nation. It's, It's known for being a prosperous place with a port, but a huge, huge temple to a pagan god. Completely different ethics and religious practices than the people of Israel of old. They have come out of this old way of living. And Paul wants to give them this exhortation of what not to do. Now, for some of us, the idea of just being told what not to do is actually comforting. Just tell me what not to do, and I won't do it. So I don't offend anybody. So don't go tell me the speed limit, so I don't get pulled over. Tell me what time I need to be home, mom, so I don't get in trouble. Being given clear instruction can be comforting to us. And the Christian faith does include prohibitions, things we ought not to do, things that are antithetical to who we are in Christ. Now, as we look at these passages, it's tempting for us to look at these and to, and to see it as a descriptor of what sinful people are like. They're darkened in their understanding. They're ignorant. They're callous. They've been given up to all of these evil things. And it's easy to read these types of passages and think about other people and make ourselves feel better. But that is not Paul's intent. Paul is not giving them a diagnostic for culture, though what he is saying here is true. He is giving them a diagnostic for themselves. These ought not to be true of them, of us. This is the way of the world, the way they used to live in their fallen Sinful condition apart from God. Now this isn't new in the letter. Paul has uh, made similar statements about just the reality of people apart from God. He says in chapter 2, "...you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. Remember at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise." Having no hope and without God in the world. We read these passages, we can't help but think of the broader world. But it's important for us to remember as we look at this passage, it has a lot to do with thinking, with our minds, with our understanding. And it'd be easy to try to come to the conclusion that somehow if you are not a Christian, if you have not received the grace of God, then you're not capable of anything. And of course, we know that is not true. Some of the most brilliant, successful, smart people in history and even in our current age know nothing of the things of God. What Paul is getting here is not the idea that you need God to be successful, to be smart and cunning. He is aiming at a spiritual problem, the spiritual darkness of the mind. Remember, uh, as you read through Psalms, the wicked are oftentimes the ones who are prosperous, who are successful, who have who have gained so much. And it is the godly who are waiting for God to act. Now we can read these passages, and you know, they're they're pretty black and white and pretty broad in terms of their their indictment and, and perhaps we read them and we say, Well, I don't do that. I don't do these things. I'm not callous and given over to all of these passions. I'm not alienated from the life of God. And perhaps, and hopefully, in God's grace, we have made some good progress. We we have been putting off the old self. But this is a daily, ongoing need for the life of a believer. Remember, Paul's not talking here about their conversion. These are people that Paul went to and spent three years with and developed elders and leaders in their congregation and sent his friends to go and continue on the work. Paul is exhorting the church that there is a continual need to grow in godliness, to truly understand the gospel, to have the strength to comprehend the love of God and its impact in our own lives. As these big category black and white statements Sometimes it's hard to remember the subtleties of how these things work themselves out in their lives. Now, I'm not as much of a reader as Pastor Mark is, but one of my favorite books is C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. The reason why I love that book is because C.S. Lewis teases out all of the subtleties of the ways in which we are tempted to turn away from the things of God. It's a book about two demons as they're deceiving a believer. Just distracting somebody. It's not You don't have to completely turn them away from God. Just make them busy doing this instead. Or make it not that big a deal. So when we read these passages here, darkened in their understanding. Well, darkened, that's pretty extreme. Alienated, ignorant, callous, given over. Realize that there are subtleties to the ways in which the old self continues to hold on to us. Think of the ways that we minimize the sin that we commit in our lives. The things that we have just become accustomed to. The the ways we've become uninterested in pursuing godliness and the study of the things of God. The the attitude that I'm just okay where I'm at. The ways in which we harden our hearts against other people. The areas in our life that we've just kind of given up Everybody's dealing with that. I'm dealing with It's just, it is what it is. I imagine that's the mindset of many of these people in Ephesus. They live in such a dark pagan culture. And Paul is exhorting them, this is not how you learned Christ. These things are true, that God has done this work. And so we ought to live in light of it. You see, as Paul uses this imagery of walking... They have been walking in this way, walking as the Gentiles do. Paul is not just telling them to stop walking and to be still. Perhaps that's one of the things we would do is to just stop doing something. But as we'll see in the verses that follow, Paul is actually calling them to walk in a different way. There's still an active participation. Where are the areas in our life where we have merely slowed down? Or just stopped? And where do we need God's Spirit to enable us to put off those old self ways? Moving on to verse 20, Paul talks about this new way of walking. This is not the way you would learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The Ephesians had been recipients of this great message. They have heard the good news, they have been taught by the apostles that the truth is in Jesus. Instead of walking in ignorance and darkness, they are to be walking in the truth. They are to put off the old self, be renewed in their minds, and put on the new self. Now, there's a couple that used to be members of the church in Mankato, uh, and he was a hog buyer for Hormel. He spent his days traveling around rural Minnesota, probably into South Dakota at times, going and buying hogs. And when he would come home, his wife would make him strip down to about nothing before he could come into that house. If you've ever been to a hog farm, you know why. Because hog farms smell real bad. Real bad. And as you walk around a hog farm all day, no doubt there are remnants of the farm that come with you. Not to mention just the absorption of the smell. And so his wife wanted nothing to do with that smell and it must stay in the garage before he can come in. This is some of the imagery Paul is using as we are to put off the old man with its rank sin, its destructive practices, all of the filth that comes with it, to put it off, but also to put on something new. As I think about this imagery of putting off and putting on, I can't help but think of a great theological term we use all the time. One of the first things Jesus ever said in his public ministry, repent. Repentance, our Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, defines for us repentance, and I think it's helpful for us as we look at this passage. It says this, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience now there's a lot going on and that's not the most clean sounding thing if you're not familiar with this question and answer so just a few observations that are just so helpful as the westminster puts this a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, right? They they understand what Paul is saying. We shouldn't walk like that. We know what we ought not to do. But it's not just that. It's also an apprehension of the mercy of God. They see the way they ought not to live. They see the grace of God available to them. And they turn from this to that. With grief and hatred from their sin, turn from it unto God. They're not just stopping something bad, but doing something better. Repentance is not about reducing our sin. Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians is not to just stop doing three or four of these things, of the list of all of the ways in which they used to walk. It might be so bold to even say the goal here, the goal for us in the Christian life is not to focus on overcoming our sin in some sort of systematic way, but instead to be reminded and united to Christ who overcomes sin for us. Through our union with him, our sin will begin to be dealt with. We will be empowered. We will be renewed. We will be able to see it for what it is, to be able to turn from it. And so there's the understanding of the sin, but the apprehension of the mercy of God. Paul puts it here. The truth is in Jesus. So we're, we're putting off this old thing and we're putting on a new thing. It reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 as he's talking about baptism. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We have put him on as, as a new identity. This is what Paul is giving them, exhortation, that this this is all true of you in Christ. And if you have put on Christ, if you have been redeemed, if God has chose you, all of the things Paul has extolled to the Ephesians for years of his life and here in this letter, this is how our lives ought to change. From sin to righteousness, from judgment to forgiveness, from death to life. And Paul gives some really practical examples of what this looks like in the last section of our passage today. What it looks like to walk this out. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So instead of falsehood, speaking truth. Don't just stop speaking. If all you can do is say falsehood, Paul's not saying just stop talking. But instead, be filled with truth in your speech. Just before our passage today, Paul exhorts them to speak the truth in love. Because we are members of one another. It goes on to say, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now there are very few instances of anger that are not sinful in and of themselves. There are some righteous angers that we can have. We can be angry about the sin in our own life, angry about the injustice in the world and the various things we see around us. I know that Paul's really trying to give us a good category of how we can be angry all the time as long as we don't sin. He said, when you're angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's Paul talking about here? Now, I've heard it said, many marriage conferences and other places that, you know, if you're in a conflict with somebody, particularly your spouse or somebody close to you, do not go to bed until you resolve that conflict. It sounds really nice, but it's very difficult. Very difficult. But why, why is that such a common application of this? Isn't, it seems that this, Paul is really saying this. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't, don't let the day end while you have unresolved conflict. Because it gives opportunity to the devil. What happens when you have unresolved conflict and you just let it go for a day and two days and a week and a month and a year? It festers. It gets worse. It causes more sin. Sin begins to multiply in the silence. I heard one pastor say this. I think it's so helpful. How arrogant for a person to say, I'll do tomorrow what the Lord has called me to do today. Paul is calling the Ephesians. God is calling us to not be passive, but to engage And I don't think this is just to do with anger, but really an application for all of these things. We ought to do these things now. Speak the truth now. Reconcile now. This is the way of the new self. Look at what Paul calls the thief to do. No longer steal. Don't do that. And don't just do nothing, but to labor in order that so not only do something positive, but also that he can be a blessing to those in need. Don't let corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion. You see, there's, there's an immediacy to all of these things, right? The thief shouldn't just keep stealing until you know he figures it out and then start working and then start blessing people. There's, there's something about, especially for my own personality, I like to have a plan. I like to make a spreadsheet, put it on a calendar, get things figured out. Paul's exhortation here is that these old ways, they have to go away. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Stop stealing. Stop corrupt talk. Stop falsehood. But what I love about this section about corrupt talk coming out of your mouth, look at the difference. Only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What a tremendous exhortation. This book as we look at it, we often like to think of it individualistically. The thief, you know, ourselves, those people who do those things. But this is a book about the church. All of these things are communal. And much of what Paul is, ex- is expressed here is how God is at work building these people together in this one new man, in Christ. And so as we look at what Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to do, not do and to do he's talking about doing them in this community that even the way in which we talk with one another has the ability to tear people down or to administer grace to one another we see this continue to play out put away all bitterness wrath anger clamor slander malice that sounds pretty corrupt talking instead be kind tender-hearted forgiving one another As God in Christ forgave you. You see how Paul is taking the old, stopping it, and adding something new. If we just stop doing bad things, well, we'll never succeed. But it creates a vacuum, and the world loves a vacuum. Jesus even talks about this a bit in Matthew chapter 12. He says, When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest but finds none. A person has been delivered from a demon. But then the Spirit says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes and finds the house empty, swept, and put in order, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. (laughs) I got delivered by a demon, from a demon, and now I have seven. The solution to our problem with the old self is not going to be solved by prohibition. Instead, we must be filled. We must be renewed. We must embrace and put on the new self. But as we hear... And respond to Paul's urging here to no longer walk in ignorance, to put off that old self and to put on the new self. We ought to challenge ourselves to think about the actions and the patterns and the thoughts and the sins in our lives that remain in the old self. Things we must put off. Remember Paul saying to go from falsehood to truth, anger to reconciliation, theft to generosity, corrupt to to building up. Perhaps you can identify with those things. They seem pretty broad. I hope we can at least read some of our own humility into that. But think about this in any area of our lives. Laziness to diligence and faithfulness. From gluttony to health. From lust to love and faithfulness. From avoidance to engagement. From pride and to humility. Just come up with any sin And think of any righteousness that would correspond to it. But really, if we get to the root of all sin, all these sins in particular, you you just see that this self-reliance, this pleasure, arrogance, self-centeredness ought to turn to prayer, heartfelt true dependence on the Lord. That this new identity, this work of God comes from outside of ourselves. So what I don't want us to do is to take these lists, to listen to what I say, man, this message sounds very negative. So what we tend to do in these scenarios, when we look at passages in scripture that, that list things like this, we want to go make a list and start working on it. Maybe. And perhaps meditating on the ways in which God might be calling us to repent isn't a bad thing. It is part of the putting off and the putting on. I don't want you to do that, at least not in that way. Because part of the putting off is that putting on. It is only when we find that dependence on God, when we read through all of the blessings that Paul has extolled for us in the first three chapters of this book, when we meditate on who God is and what Christ has done for us, that we begin to even comprehend that we can put off. It's almost as if we are filling ourselves as the old is being poured out. It's not this, then that. But this is an ongoing work of repentance and sanctification as God is at work calling us into our new identity in Christ. And notice in your own life how discipline in one area can bring discipline in many of our areas. And notice how interconnected most of these things are, having to do with how we think and how our thoughts affect our desires and how our desires affect our actions. So as we come to the end here, I want to just, once again, coming in the middle of a book, a passage that has so much command in it, I have to go over all the things that Paul has said. There's about 30, and I'll list them off quite quickly for you. Paul has told the church, God has declared to you in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he would make us holy and blameless, been predestined for adoption. We have redemption through Christ's blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. He has lavished his grace upon us. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. Through him we have obtained an inheritance We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's given us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of our hearts are being enlightened. We were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive. He has raised us up with him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not a result of works. Not your own doing that anyone should boast. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ for good works that he prepared beforehand. We were once far off, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have been reconciled to God. He preached peace to you. We have access by the Spirit to the Father. We are fellow citizens with the saints. We are members of the household of God. Four more. We are being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are being strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being that Christ might dwell in your hearts. Paul prays that we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's quite a list. It's unthinkable that these things would be true. And yet, this is the message Paul has proclaimed. This is the message we see here for us today, that God has done these things for them and for you. You see how reading through those things, meditating on those things, begins to change the way we think. It gives us the enabling power as God's Spirit is at work that we might put off and put on. God has done such incredible things for his people. Therefore, let us leave behind all of those old self ways and look to God following after the Spirit's leading. Let's not just wait another day when God is at work He is at hand and his grace is available to us. May he convict us of the ways in which we must put off our old self, but may he remind us and strengthen us and renew us in these truths. The truth is in Jesus. God is at work renewing us by the power of his spirit, putting to death that old self and giving us this new identity. May that be our prayer that we would see God at work, making us new. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.